With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Hello and welcome to Inspired Conversations with me, Ruth Owen. Today my guest is Leslie Marsh. Leslie is a shamanic consultant, a storyteller and a professional speaker. And she's speaking to me today from Scotland. Welcome, Leslie. Hi, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's so good to speak to a real shaman. I want you to tell me, what is a shaman? A shaman is a person who is basically, in the old days, the leader of the spiritual welfare of the village of the people. There was one for every tribe, and there is still one for every tribe, really. It's all about an animistic belief system and very much spiritually advised as in everything has spirit so trees forests earth the car engine that you just heard going by all has spirit and it's something that means that we respect all the things that are around us and therefore it's about living in harmony with and balance with the world when you talk about tribes and every tribe has one who do you mean because we've kind of moved out of the tribal way of living To an extent, you would think that we have in the the old way of living in tribes, but we do still have our our teams and our our sides that we we like to be associated with. In the beginning, the shamanism, the word shaman comes from the Tungus and Tinglet tribes of northern Siberia, and they are still tribal people up there, way, way up by the top end of Russia. And it's all about the community. Most shamanic tribes up there are nomadic and they deal a lot with reindeer and going different places to find food and to find water and to find good grazing for the reindeer. Now, the interesting thing about that is, particularly with the Sami culture, which was also a shamanic culture to begin with, everything there is connected with the contract between the animals and the, the, the people themselves. And the go-to person to decide what was going on would be the shaman, because the shaman would be slightly apart from the rest of the people, but also very much involved in the people's lives and daily experiences. So when we get to modern times, and the modern shaman situation, it's a little bit more global than it used to be because we're doing this kind of stuff. But also there's, a, there's always a space for someone who helps other people out with some of the situations that they're going through and have no other recourse. They may have tried everything and may have failed to deal with what's going on with them. But it's one of those things that it's a very personal relationship that happens between the shaman and the persons who come to connect with them. And would you and describe very, the, the, sorry, sorry to interrupt you there, Leslie, but would you describe a shaman as like a halfway house between us in the real world, as it were, and the, the ethereal world and the unseen world? Yeah, definitely. The Siberians have a way of saying uh, that the shamans are the ones who sit on the farthest branch of the tree of life. And, you know, they're a little bit weird. They're a little bit outwards and don't think the same way. And that's basically because we do have a foot in either camp. We have one foot in the in the spiritual ethereal worlds, and for us there are three of them. And then we have the, the foot in the common sense, practical, we have to live and survive world. What do you mean and by the three worlds? 
Well, in shamanism, there's the lower world, the middle world, and the upper world, and each world has its own entities and its own powers of wisdom and connection. So the lower world is where all the power animals and the ally spirits are first connected with, and it's got, you know, the only thing it has to do with hell, and that's with one L, is in Norse shamanism, where hell is the goddess of the underworld. And it's a space where it's the easiest place to go for someone who's learning how to journey to connect with a spirit animal. But then the middle world is the universe next door. And that's where a lot of healing happens. And it can be easily punched through by people dreaming, having nightmares and, you know, being open to things like that. So we would call that stuff that's in the the middle world is where you can also pick up things that other people have left behind if you're sensitive enough. And so there are occasions when some people have wandered in there unexpectedly and come out with something like a depression or an anxiety that wasn't there to begin with. And then they would go to see the shaman and the shaman would speak to that spirit and allow that spirit to be put back where it belongs. And then what about the upper realm? The upper realm is where you would find your angelic realms, your divine children, the light workers go a lot to the the upper worlds. And it's basically where you will find enlightenment, where you will find a lot of the ancestors as well. But it's something that when you're dealing with messages from spirit, from an idea that you have to do something, our council of elders is held in the upper world. And I think that's a perception of where we would think our Council of Elders would be. But it's a case of sometimes when you go and you're expecting to go one place, because we do actually have a map of where we want to go, then we can find ourselves with our initial guardian and guide going through and they say, no, 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 you don't want to be here. We have to go to the middle world or we have to go to the upper world because you have to see this. And what it is, is we're being taken to see stories. We're being taken to see scenes and signs of what's going on when we journey for someone else. And that's what we do. We go there for guidance for other people. It sounds a bit like the film Scrooge, you know, the one with Patrick Stewart, where he goes with the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas future. Yes, definitely. But the one that really got me as to how to describe what a journey was like was the film Avatar, the very first scene in Avatar, where you actually, particularly if you see it in 3D, you're flying with the beasties that they fly with, the big pterodactyl dragon things. And when I saw that, I I kind of dunted my husband in the ribs and said, James Cameron has definitely been on a journey with a shaman because this is just so like journeying. It's unbelievable. It is that release of limitations because there are no physical laws the way that we have them on this plane. When you go into a different world, you can be meeting up with a dolphin who can actually breathe fresh and walk down the road with you because it's an energy. It's it's not encapsulated in a, a living embodiment of something. It's the energy of it and the power that that animal brings to you and the wisdom of that animal or being, because some people have aliens for journey companions. Some people have unicorns or dragons. These are all... Um, mythical creatures but they're mythical creatures because they they embody power they embody a way of being and an idea and an ideal 
So we deal a lot in that abstract concept by allowing them to be embodied in a form that we will recognize. So when someone is going on a journey, we don't know what they're going to get. We have no idea what they're going to get. They'll come back and tell us what they've got. And, oh, right. Okay. And what did that animal person being say to you that they were there for? And that's basically what the, the thing is. They're there for a reason. They're there to help with a situation. And it, it's quite youngy in a way. The collective consciousness idea is something that I ascribe to quite happily, um, mainly because ideas pop into my head from as if from nowhere, and I can only think they're being dropped in there on purpose into my collective pool of unconsciousness. But I like to call it the universal mind. So it's one of those things that when you delve into shamanism, it's a really interesting and sometimes convoluted road, but it's actually got a physical manifestation in what your your end result is. Tell me about the, the mythical creatures, because if mythical creatures mean that they don't really exist, so how can you have unicorns and dragons taking you to another world? I don't really understand that. Well, there, there's a, a, an argument, an opinion that, Basically, if you conceive of it, if you can think of it, it did exist at one point. Now, there are animals on this earth that have one horn and there are animals who have two horns, but they are so parallel with each other that they actually, from the side view, look like one horn. And I think that's an oryx and it's a desert animal. But the unicorn was brought about in the Middle Ages, Dark Ages at one point. It goes way, way back in time. And there are actually hares as well who have horns. And that is, it's an illness. It's a disease that causes bony protuberances to grow from their heads. So, you know, there are possibilities that there were such things or someone has seen something and they brought that into being by painting it, drawing it, describing it to someone who could do that and then building a story around it and unicorns have got a great history particularly in heraldry and different situations like that they they mean particularly the white ones mean purity and in some cases virginity because the tale is that to catch a unicorn it must be a a young virgin who catches it with her own hair made from a braid of her own hair so there's a whole thing that goes on, particularly when we come into the middle world again, where it's actually known as the fairy realm, the realm where the fairies are. Now, I don't mean the little twinkle toe things that we see with the little wands that kind of donk you on the head and spray fairy dust everywhere. There will probably be that for people who believe that that's what they are like. But the fae, the shining ones, the danshi, they are particularly interesting because they are very tricky to deal with. And they're in a lot of Celtic mythologies, but they're also in mythologies globally. There are fae globally and different ranks of fae as well. Elves are different to um, gnomes and different to dwarves and different to many other sections of the fae that I don't even have met yet. But within that realm, you will find unicorns because they are magical creatures. So I think that that's got a lot to do with how people are being perceived and how people dream and what they see in their dreams, because dreams are very important. 
So you would say that because somebody imagines something like a unicorn, that the spirit, whatever it is that is leading that person through other realms, takes the form of a unicorn so that it's it's recognisable to that person. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, it's quite simple because we are quite simple people. We, when it comes to what we will trust and what we will we will allow ourselves to see, and that we will gift the ability to connect with us, it's got to be something that we kind of recognise. But in order for spirit to kind of say to us, um, this isn't your average bear kind of thing. This is something that's not in your normal way of living. That reality that you have every day when you open your eyes, put your feet on the floor. There's something else. There's something that's apart from that, but is part of that. And that's the, the situation where we are flesh and blood, but we're also mind and spirit and emotion. Yeah. There are things that are intangible within us and out with us. So we have the power to change the mood in a room just by how we're feeling. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. But if we were to put a face to that, if we were to put a, a being to that, how we feel about it, this is when our inspiration starts to flow and we will see things and connect with things because we've been told and taught unicorns are good, they're, they're nice, they're beautiful things and they're very magical and it's a nice thing to have a unicorn and it's all nice and happy clappy. It's all beautiful. Angels are wonderful. Now, angels are really wonderful, but they're not actually predominantly Christian. They're, they predate Christianity. And it's an interesting thing to understand that they are actually within other religions as well that are angels and the same ones, the same names. And it's, that's an interesting thing to me. That makes me very curious about the origins and the this is mine, not yours situation. The way that they're portrayed is different also. They are portrayed as warriors in some case. When you were talking earlier about fae, fairies, it reminds me, it was a few years ago, I met an author who was writing a book about fairies and other beings. He called them guardians of the earth. Yeah. Little beings who look after the trees and the plants and all that sort of thing. He was telling me a story about a family he came across who had a very old pear tree at the bottom of their garden. And the pear tree was getting a bit sick and it wasn't producing any fruit and looked a bit sad, so the family decided to cut it down. Mm -hmm. And after they cut it down, they were disturbed night after night by what they describe as elves. They yes. said on the second floor of their house, there was no way of reaching the window at that level, but they were woken up every night by little faces at the window, tapping on the window, looking terribly, terribly sad because the pear tree had been cut down. That was their home. That was their home, yes. That was their home, yes. In Irish mythology and in, in some Scots mythologies, the Hawthorn is very fae. There is uh, the fairy thorn, and uh, a friend of mine actually was inspired to write a book about it. It's particularly in Ireland believed that you do not touch a fairy thorn. They have moved motorways and made bypasses around fairy thorns in Ireland because when they have moved them, there have been black spots and accidents where they moved them. So they pay attention to fairy thorns. And in Norway and in other parts of Scandinavia, they are very aware of trolls and uh, will be very careful of anywhere that might be a troll mound or a troll bridge 
And this has all got to do with a time when we were closer to nature and we were closer to the spirit of nature. I mean, in Scotland, we have brownies. And brownies were beings who would help you out, like the the tailor and the elves, uh, the shoemaker and the elves, sorry, who would leave his leather out at at night and then the the elves would come and make beautiful boots. And it's always said that anything that's made by the fae is absolutely astoundingly beautiful. But also you have to, with brownies, they don't like to be thanked. You can leave a dish out for them and, you know, pretend it's not for them and they'll eat quite happily. But if you go and thank them, you'll never see them again. You'll never have help from them again. Tell me what brownies are, because I, I don't know what brownies are. Oh, brownies are Scottish little goblin things, which got a bad name for a while. But actually, they're helpful spirits. And they used to be around farms, particularly way up north and in the Shetland Islands as well. They call them something different. I can't quite remember the name, what they call them in Shetland. But uh, there's a lot of stories about brownies in farmyards and farms, about how they help out with uh, different things in the house and uh, helping in the barns, keeping the barns clear of rats and things. And uh, especially the only time that you really get to, to hear about the story is when someone has actually gone out and thanked them for it and then never saw them again. They're very quiet in the fae world, though. There's not that many stories about them. I think they, they kind of tailed off. The, we got lost with the Gaelic with that, I think. But, of course, our most famous fairy, our most famous, famous fairy in Scotland is Nessie, Ekushka, the water horse. So do you believe that Nessie exists? Yeah. As, as a do. creature? As a creature, yes, I think she exists. And I think there's more than one of her because every loch in Scotland has an Ekushka. Everybody of water. Has a what? Ekushka. That's a Gaelic for water horse. Wasn't there a film called The Water Horse? Yes, there was. And uh, that's kind of where it comes from. The, the stories of Morag and Shona with the water horse is it's uh, basically a young girl who's coming of age and something happens. It's really a, an idea that the water horse will come from the depths of the loch every hundred years or so looking for a bride. Now, what happens is that she's fed up. She's going to be sent to the to get the cattle from the high pasture to bring them back down because winter's coming. And she finds this gentleman lying on the beach. And being a forward kind of lassie, she goes and talks to him and he mesmerises her after a fashion. He's a very good-looking bloke. And then he lays his head on her lap and she decides to comb his hair out while he sleeps because she thinks he's half drowned from the lock and he's tired. So as she's combing his hair out, she notices that there's seaweed tangled in the teeth of the comb. And then she realises that what she's actually combing is the mane of Ekushka. So she makes her way and she gets him off of her lap and she starts to run. And he suddenly realises that he's been got. She knows who he is. And she finally gets to a, a piece of running water and she jumps the running water because, of course, in that legend, the fairy horse cannot cross running water. And that's a, a warning to young girls to be wary of strange young men in secret locations. But the, the one in Shetland is really interesting because the, in Shetland, it's a pony that uh, actually, when someone jumps on them to ride, will what we call cart them, which means run away with them and take them deep into the loch and drown them. These aren't very nice stories. <laughs> fairy tales are not actually very nice at all. In part of my business, I actually use fairy tales. They were originally not written for children. They were adult tales. 
And we tell them as adult tales, but we also tell them in guided visualization in a shamanic trance. And we teach people to journey into that story and to actually ask questions of the characters within that story. They're fascinating. Well, let's journey into a little break and we'll be back shortly. Be happy, be inspired. This is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Online, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is Inspire Radio. You know, we're all about helping make a positive difference to people's lives. We launched January 20th, 2020, and we now have listeners in 28 countries across the world. Maybe if you're a lifestyle brand, work in the areas of personal development, health and well-being... Maybe you'd like us to help share your message to the listeners of Inspire Radio, not just here in the UK, but across the world. If you would, just drop us an email. Simply email steve at inspireradio.co.uk. Tell you what, let's enjoy a uh, cappuccino moment or green tree moment via Zoom and let's have a chat. So once again, if you'd like to know more, just drop me an email steve at inspireradio.co.uk. Let's help make a positive difference to people's lives across the world. Attention, please. We at HealthSpan would like to tell you something that, quite possibly, you didn't already know. Not all supplements are created equal. I know. Who'd have thought? We travel the entire globe to find the best ingredients for our vitamins and supplements. From the southern slopes of India for our turmeric to the cold, crisp seas of Greenland for our cod liver oil. Because that's the HealthSpan way. Well, there you go. It's not every day you learn something new, is it? We're HealthSpan. That's healthspan.co.uk. Vitamins and supplements. In store or direct to your door. This is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Welcome back to Inspired Conversations. And I'm talking to Leslie Marsh. Before the break, Leslie, we're talking about the different tales and fairy tales and the characters. So tell me about Red Riding Hood and the Three Bears. Why do you like that? Oh, I identify with Red Riding Hood so much. It's always been my favourite story. And I always thought the wolf got a bad you know, rap, really, because the wolf is not bad. Wolf is, is harsh sometimes, but not bad. In shamanism, we call him Pathfinder. He can travel the light paths and the dark paths. He can go deep into the forest, into the places that people can't go or would normally not want to go. But also he can travel in the light. So he lives in two worlds. He takes this girl onto an initiatory path. And for me, she is the young shamanka. She's the next shaman of the village. So she's actually being initiated. Now, the red cloak actually has a magical term as well, because when you look at the Rider Waite, particularly tarot cards, you'll see number one, the magician, is wearing a red cloak. And in magical terms, this is called the red cloak of desire. And when you get the red cloak as a magician, it means that you are in complete control of your desires. So you can wear them or you can cast them off at your will. It's a very powerful thing to be able to do. Mm. You're not forced by your desire. You're not suddenly angry and can't control yourself. You're actually totally always in control. So this red cloak is a signal to say that you are powerful and that you are knowing and that you are wise. So for me, Red Riding Hood... So, yeah, so I was going to say, so you think that Red Riding Hood is a powerful person, that she's not a victim? No, she's definitely not a victim. She's actually being taken from, the stories do vary from place to place, but she's actually being taken from one state of being and going through the forest, meeting her wolf, who will then test her 
and take her through a path that she will not know of, but it's how she actually deals with that and looks at it and gets through this journey to go to grandma's house, who would be the chief shamanka of the village who's waiting for her. And shape-shifting is a big part of shamanism. So it could well be that granny is the wolf. I was going to ask you, how do you become a shaman? Are you chosen or do you choose to become one? You don't really choose to become one. You are chosen. And I think it was uh, Labari, the anthropologist, who stated the the ways that you can be chosen as a shaman. One is near-death experience. One is nervous breakdown, complete nervous breakdown, so you lose all your wits. The other is if you're an hereditary shaman, so you're born into it. And then the, the incumbent shaman of the, of the village of the people can actually choose you as an apprentice and take you on. A lot of people are enamored of the idea of shamanism. It's not an easy path to, to walk. It will actually take you and make you sit with yourself with all your fears, all your limitations, all your uneasy and anything else that's going on with you. And it will make you sit and look at it and really deal with it. How did you become a shaman? What was the process? <laughs> well, I was doing it before I understood what it was. When I was a very little girl, something happened in my bedroom one night and I was called, I was wakened up to see something in my room. And it started off as a pinpoint of light, which was a kind of squarey shape. And then it became another one and another one, another, almost an unfolding from this one thing, multiplying, you know. And it was bright turquoise and golds and yellows and greens. And it was a little Buddha shape. He was sitting in the lotus position and he was just sitting there. And I heard this. And I couldn't figure it. I didn't know what that was. And I was just so fascinated by it. Didn't even understand what it was. But from then on, I had a real hankering for Tibet and for anything Tibetan. I was totally fascinated with it. And through their shamanic culture, through their everything. So my mind was already and my heart was already in that way of there's something else out there, there's something different. And so I explored the different and I explored that. And certain things had happened and between two cars, an elephant, a bus and a couple of horses, I had a few uh, near-death experiences. And I also was ill. I had a, a mental illness at one point. And this, this happens, you'll find that a normal story in shamanic culture, that when someone isn't really paying attention, it's almost like the piano dropping on your head in the cartoons. What do you need? What do, what do we need to do to get you to notice that we want you to do this? So things were put in place and I would get in, in touch with people. People, I would bump into people, get to know people. And eventually, I, I became a vet nurse. So I was very interested in animals. I started working at the local zoo when I was 11. And uh, I got that through a secretarial teacher. So there, there's a, a tangent for you. <laughs> I, was, I was so bored in secretarial class. And it was my mother's decision I would be a secretary. I didn't like the idea at all. And I was so bored that I pulled the paper out and I put another set in and said, dear sir, can I come and work in your zoo? And as I was typing, the sun went out and it went deadly silent. And this tweeded arm came across my shoulder and ripped the paper out. Now this teacher 
was known to be something akin to Genghis Khan in drag in a very bad mood. And my two sisters had had her as secretary teacher. So I knew her reputation. And I suddenly realized that I'd got myself in trouble. And everybody else in the class had realized it too. And they were all waiting there like Madame Defarge, rubbing their hands, waiting to see what, you know, how, how much belting I was going to get. Because in those days, we got the belt. And eventually she called me through. And I seemed to be the, this maverick streak I have in me, or defiant streak, as my sister would say. She said to me, are you serious about this? And I was expecting to be berated, to be shouted at, to be belted. I wasn't expecting that. And I said, yes, I don't want to be a secretary. I went to work with animals. She said, right, good. And she said to me, you have an appointment with the curator of the zoo on Sunday at 11 o'clock. And I said, um, my mother, she said, don't worry about your mother, I'll talk to her. And I was 11 years old and I started working at a zoo. And that took me through and that got me into being an animal technician and then into being a vet nurse at Glasgow University Vet College. And I was working in a vet practice in Middlesex when I encountered a lady who was someone who dealt with the runes. And I was fascinated by runes. I had no clue how to deal with them. So one day when it was very quiet, which is unusual in a vet practice, we actually got some time and she brought them in. And she said, stick your hand in there and pull out three runes. So I did. And the first one I pulled out was Tear, which is the little arrowhead. And she looked at it and she said, that's you. You're a warrior in your heart. And I thought, I'll take that. Oh, I'll take that. Yeah, I fight with my heart. I'll take that. And about four or five years later, I ended up walking up a street in Glastonbury. And there was an A-frame that said, warrior in the heart, shamanic training. So I thought, that'll be for me then. Wow. That was my official apprenticeship. And then it really started. I never thought I would be anything else but a veterinary nurse because people scared the living daylights out of me. But animals are very truthful. They're very honest. And they'll tell you if they don't like what you're doing very quickly and sometimes quite severely. So I ended up being initiated into a shamanic community called the Woven Clan and became a, a reverend shaman pathfinder. And... Um, it just opened up a whole vista of things. It also opened up the ability to get to Tibet, that since I'm five years old, I've been looking for. And last year, we and our 25th generation Nepalese shaman friend and a few others went to Tibet via Nepal, Kathmandu. It was absolutely astounding. And what did you learn in Tibet? I learned a lot about myself. And I learned a lot about how shamanism is actually still very much a part of some orthodox religions like Hinduism and some of the other Indian religions, Sikhism. There's a lot of shamanic practice in all religions. I often describe it as, this is why shamans love trees. Trees are in every aspect subliminally the map of spirituality and life. You have the roots which go deep underground and then you have the strong trunk that comes up. So you have the lower world, the trunk in the middle world and you have the branches that go off to the side for the middle world and then you have the topmost branches that are the upper worlds. So you have your three worlds in one place and in magical law as well, as above so below, the tree branches and the, the, the top of the tree actually mirrors the roots below. 
quite remarkable, yeah, because about 18 months ago, I went to Peru and the shamans there, they explain it in, in similar ways that the serpent is representative of the lower world, the puma represents the middle world, as you call it, and the condor, which is the most amazing, graceful bird that has a yeah. wingspan of, well, I don't know, I think it's four meters or something ridiculous. They represent the upper world. So this trilogy of worlds, it, it exists all, all around the globe, doesn't it? Yes, yes, it's universal. And it's where everything began, really. It's where everything started. This nature versus nurture thing that we have is an argument that's only really in so-called civilized society. But the thing is that we originally were hunter-gatherers. We all were, until we learned to farm. And being hunter-gatherers, now there, there is DNA evidence for this as well, in uh, Sami culture and Mongolian and the Siberian reindeer people, these are all up in the Arctic areas, reindeer people. And they discovered that there's actually two separate DNAs of the reindeer. They're the herding reindeer, the, the reindeer that are actually semi-domesticated, because they're never really domesticated properly, they're not like cows or, or horses or anything like that. They made a contract in some way with the early hunter-gatherer people. You protect me from wolves and other things, and we'll show you where all the good food is, where all the good water is, where you can go in the winter when the snows are 20 feet deep and survive. And you can have from us our skins, our meat, our bones of the old and the infirm, those who will not make another winter. And that actually has been shown as a DNA bifurcation in that there are some reindeer who are not at all willing to be anywhere near human beings. When you talk about a pact between the reindeer and the northern people, what form does that take? You know, how do you know there was a pact and, and how would it have been agreed upon? Well, that's where the shaman comes in because the shaman goes to the spirit world and talks to the spirit of the reindeer. And so they would have a conversation. Oh, I see. And make that offer. And then, like most Buddhist ideas of thoughts become things, Thoughts are very, very powerful things. So is when you go into a spiritual meditative trance and you are actually allowing yourself to connect with other energies. And it's like, I don't know if you ever watched The Dog Whisperer. No. Caesar Milan is someone who can deal with any dog in any state of mind and being. But actually what he does is he connects with them on an energetic level. He doesn't try to force his will on them. He looks at himself as a member of the pack, but as the leader of that pack and teaches the dog that that's what he is because basically we forgot to be leaders of, we are pack animals, we are herd animals. We like to be social, which is why we're having so much trouble at the moment in lockdown. And this is where we have the, the tribal situation. We cleave together in packs, in communities, in situations. We will come together in certain ways not always physically, particularly now. But when you're dealing with an animal, there has to be an energetic. If you go in with very anxious, upset, fearful, they can smell it off you and they can feel it off you and they will be the boss. But when you go in there totally calm, and it's not a, you're going to do what I want you to do. It's a very, very much a, how can we help one another to be in harmony together again? So it's a conversation rather than a struggle for power. Hmm. It's a conversation. And mainly he's teaching the owners how to be that way, how to change their energy 
so that their animals will respect them as being the leader. Because, you know, anxious dogs and cats are really tired. They get tired pretty quickly and they get very grumpy. So when you think about it, if if you're in a space where you don't trust the person to look after you, where you don't really know what they want from you, it's not going to be a happy area. With the shamans and the reindeer and other animals, and we, as I say, it's an an animistic belief system. So we utilize and we connect with the energies of different animals in order to allow people to understand what's going on in their lives and in our own. It's a fascinating conversation, Leslie. I'd love to talk to you for hours about shamanism. Um, How do people get in touch with you? I'm on the net. I'm in the middle of um, doing my website, but it's uh, www.spiralheart.co.uk. And you can phone me, mobile 07968-643-552. I'm on Facebook, Journeys with Bear and Wolf is the page, or Spiral Heart Healing. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn also, Leslie Marsh. And what would you say is the gift that you bring to people? as If they come to you as a shaman and a leader in the spirit world, what can you help them with? I can help them with soul loss. And retrieval. There's a thing in shamanism called soul retrieval and it exhibits in people when they are doing things to themselves like drinking too much, smoking too much, being depressed all the time, feeling that there's there's some hole deep within them. It also works in businesses. You can't quite get your business to go off where you want it to. It won't launch, it will get stuck and there's something missing, there's something lacking and the Buddhists say that the first soul loss is at birth because that's the first near-death trauma. And we lose little bits of our soul when we are abused, when we are anxious, we've had an accident, some kind of trauma. And a little bit will peel off and just stay out safe from where you are in a turmoil. So my role in that department is to actually go and find that soul part and then make a contract between the person and the soul part so that they can come back together again. And that contract has to be stuck to because the soul part will always look after itself. And if you don't look after yourself and keep to the contract, they will leave again. And that can be worse than the initial leaving. It's wonderful to talk to you, Leslie. It it is a really fascinating topic. And I thank you very much for your time. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. We've had great fun. Thank you, we have, yes. Be happy, be inspired. With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio.